Burr. What's up, everybody? This is a new episode of Watch If You Dare with your chilly winter boys, Aaron and Derek. This is my podcast. <laughs> I was a good boy. Yep. We are going to be discussing 2015's ghost spoopy haunted house movie, We Are Still Here. But first, like always, we're going to discuss some things that we have gotten into lately. So, Derek, we'll start with you. What have you been checking out that is horror? related. Yeah, and like usual, uh, we kind of do this segment as a way to not only recommend stuff to each other, but also to our listeners. Maybe there's something that we talk about that you might wind up wanting to check out yourself. This week, I am going to be doing quite a bit of audio-related horror or horror-adjacent topics. But before I do that, the one thing that's not audio-related that I wanted to touch on was uh, I finally read the last issue of East of West, issue 45 i did too man i don't know how you felt about it i thought it ended perfectly yes yeah. it ended so good for anyone anyone who like is an east of west fan or enjoy like a couple issues of it go fucking read the rest of this series or at least read the end if you're right at the end i can't say anything about it because i don't want to spoil anything but it ended so well and it ended on a way that i wasn't expecting it is bittersweet i'll give you that much but i was like like almost expecting super dour ending yeah because the whole series felt pretty dour but the way that it leaves a bit of hope in it but while staying on brand with the rest of the comic was just like wow it was so nicely done for those of you who don't really know much about east of west i think we've recommended it on past episodes before but it is a lot of horror adjacent ideas are in it post-apocalyptic sci-fi fantasy western western biblical all kinds of stuff like it's all that shit wrapped up into one the whole premise behind it is really interesting it's like alternative history but also dealing with the horsemen of the apocalypse it's fantastic from start to finish the artwork is amazing the writing is amazing Hickman is a genius that description's maybe a tiny bit vague I guess to be more specific the storyline is in the middle of the Civil War, a comet falls in the middle of America, and there's this kind of Joseph Smith-esque preacher guy that takes it as a sign that we need to do something different. So they like call every leader of every group of the country possible together, and they basically split up America and like call an end to the Civil War. So you have the North and the South, as they were at the time, become their own areas. All the slaves are freed, and they take New Orleans as like their own kingdom. The Native American tribes all band together and become the endless nation. You have the independent Republic of Texas, which they take their own chunk. And then you have the People's Republic of California, which is all Chinese controlled. So that's the nutshell. Like it's these different groups, a new weird kind of pseudo religion is founded. That's very apocalyptic in nature. And oh, by the way, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are real. And then jump 400 years into the future. Done. That's like a primer yep. for anybody that's a little more interested to kind of dip their toes into that one. It's a very good series. It's so, so fucking good. And now that Hickman is done with that, because Hickman also did the Black Monday murders, right? Yeah. I hope now that he's done with East of West. He jumps back into that. He, yeah. He jumps back into that. That one's, I'd say, that's more horror. horror. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot more horror than even East of West is. Don't get me wrong. East of West has a lot of horror in it as well. It's super gory. Yeah. It's got a lot of demonic kind of elements to it. 
it. It's surprising it's amount of body horror. Yes. A surprising amount of body horror. The demonic possessions in that series are much less spiritual and much more physical manifestation. Yeah. To the point of twisting you into a giant grotesque monster. So yeah. To go into what I was kind of touching on earlier with more audio horror related stuff. As I was reading the last issue of East of West, I just happened to put on Electric Wizard's Dope Throne. <laughs> okay, okay. And I read most of that last issue with Funeropolis, the second track on Dope Throne, and it just fits so fucking well with like me reading that comic. <laughs> those of you who don't know electric wizard is doom metal stoner to the max like they are the quintessential doom metal band and this is a quintessential doom metal album like right up there with sleep electric wizard might be even a little more into like the darkness of doom metal yeah than than other bands are like like when you listen to this album it's almost like you're listening to the drug dealer for satan who's hitting like the cosmic bong and just there you go like it's one of the best albums of the decade it's not just a good metal album doom metal album it's just a good album altogether. but you have to be a metal fan probably to appreciate it but man did that that album work so so well with the last issue of East of West for me. I can't remember, were you the one who kind of introduced me to Electric Wizard or was I already listening to them? Oh, I can't remember. It's been so long at this point. Yeah, but uh, that whole album is fantastic. I mean, shit, there's that track, there's I Witchfinder, The Hills Have Eyes. All those songs are top notch. So I did that and then I also randomly just kind of decided to hop on Twitch and watch whatever was on the games done quick. Uh, they had been doing speed runs for raising money for charity, I think cancer. Um, and I just happened to catch the speed run of Doom 2016, which that's a fucking amazing game. And I say technically it is a horror game, but you play as the horror in that game. <laughs> John, you are the demons. Yeah, John, you are the demons. If you are scared of horror, but you want to decompress in a way that like you wish you could hit the horror back go ahead and play doom 2016 because yeah all those scary demons you fucking murder them by the droves in like the most gruesome ways possible the game does such a good job of making you feel like a badass but the reason why i brought it up specifically is the soundtrack to that game is fucking amazing i think it even won game soundtrack of the year game audio of the year whatever at the game awards who did the soundtrack for that because i know wolfenstein the soundtrack for that was one of the guys from Meshuga. So the guy who did the soundtrack for Doom 2016 is a guy named Mick Gordon. And okay. he's done film scores, video game scores. The genres he falls under is like, like you said, Degent, like Meshuga, but metal, industrial, rock. He's even done jazz and classical. Huh. 
Okay. This album, Doom 2016 soundtrack, is very much hardcore metal, like maybe a little bit of Degent, maybe a little bit of Industrial, but a lot of metal in it. And he has done several, uh, he has composed for several first-person shooters specifically, including Wolfenstein, The New Order, Wolfenstein, The Old Blood. He did the newer Prey game. The 2016 reboot of Doom is what won him that award. He did Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus. Um, I think he did Killer Instinct, uh, The New Killer Instinct that came out in like 2013 he's been all over the damn place and i actually pulled up his wikipedia yeah he won best music sound design for doom at the 2016 game awards and that soundtrack by itself you don't even have to be a gamer to appreciate it so the two tracks i would recommend are bfg division and the other track is named rip and tear those are the probably the two best ones on the soundtrack but honestly if you like them you like the rest of the soundtrack for rip and tear here is a little peek of that Awesome. And then finally, my personal favorite track. Here's a little peek of BFG Division. So yeah, you get an idea of like what what you're working with here. Uh, Mick Gordon is great as a video game composer. Um, I hope he continues to work with the Wolfenstein and Doom teams. He is the composer for Doom Eternal, the new Doom game coming out later this year, which I am excited about. If you haven't played Doom and you like video games uh, and you want to get into first-person shooters, but you're not necessarily a fan of the modern, realistic first-person shooter, Doom 2016 is a fantastic example of a great first-person shooter that can be played single player um the campaign is fantastic you know it's at least 10 hours or more if you're taking your time through it and even with the speed running that still took them like three and a half four hours to do i only watched about an hour and a half of the speed running so usually if you even when you're speed running and still takes a couple hours you know that it's a pretty meaty campaign i figured out what i was thinking about as well too so mick gordon that you mentioned the main composer for these games he worked with frederick thordnall who the guy from Meshuggah. That's what I was thinking of. And also he worked with gotcha. like an EDM guy named Richard Devine as well for that Wolfenstein soundtrack. I remember really digging that soundtrack when I first played that game Yeah, and um, looked it up and I was like, wait, Meshuggah? Okay, that band that Sean likes? Okay, yeah. Um, I just remember like him going on and on about loving Meshuggah and um, I had never like really listened to him before then. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of DeGent, but Meshuggah's alright. Our other friend, uh, Nowacki, who was on our house episode with 
Florin. <laughs> His description of Degent is that it's just the reggaeton of metal. <laughs> ever since he said that, I can never get it out of my head. And it's kind of ruined the entire genre for me. <laughs> but he kind of is right, which I hate to admit. Yeah, that's very apt. But yeah, and then another thing too was, that, so I had finished Control and the song that plays during the credits was actually Porcupine Tree's Fear of a Blank Planet. Huh. one of my favorite songs and it's definitely my favorite album by them so I kind of got in this kick because I realized I was like man I haven't listened to Porcupine Tree in probably a year or two now and they're kind of one of those bands like Tool where I'm just kind of waiting for Steven Wilson to like get the band back together and release a new album but I went ahead and I've been re-listening to the album Deadwing which was the first album I ever listened by them and I'll probably go back and go through the rest of their discography it's just I'm kind of digging in this album and Deadwing very much actually has a lot of horror elements to it because he was originally writing it as a soundtrack to a movie he wanted to make and the movie he wanted to make was going to be a ghost story hmm. because they kind of wrote a script but it never really went anywhere he now attributes it to the album and he says that the album is a surreal ghost story and he wanted to use elements of both David Lynch and Stanley Kubrick in it for instance in the song Lazarus it's about a woman speaking with her dead son and other songs on there specifically the uh, title track Deadwing Lazarus arriving somewhere but not here open car and Mellotron scratch were all originally intended to be in this film soundtrack and are all developed around a ghost story the album artwork itself is supposed to signify the ghost story with the outline of the person against that backdrop but if you're looking for some pretty solid progressive rock you can't go wrong with porcupine tree they're one of the better modern progressive rock bands i've listened to i just haven't listened to them in so long because i played the shit out of them and i kind of want to take a little bit of a break from them until maybe Stephen Wilson rejoined the band and they announced something new but I just kind of after hearing that song during the credits of Control and Control was phenomenal and the ending was fin- phenomenal it goes right into that song by Porcupine Tree I was like well shit I gotta get back into Porcupine Tree so I am in the middle of doing that a lot of their albums specifically from In Absentia on deal with horror elements I would say because there's In Absentia Deadwing Fear of a Blank Planet and then I think the last one was The Incident since then Stephen Wilson's kind of been doing his own solo stuff which is also good but I would appreciate if he went back to Porcupine Tree 
since I touched a little bit on video games, for those of you who don't know, I am a little bit of a retro video game collector. Our buddy Jonathan Nowacki, he kind of got me turned on to video game collecting. And over the years, I have traded in a lot of comics, sold a lot of comics, and used that money towards video game collecting. One of the things I did over the years was uh, get a Dreamcast and kind of collect a library of the Dreamcast games, specifically the horror games. The ones in particular that I have are Ill Bleed, Carrier, Blue Stinger, and D2. And a lot of these are actually hard to come by if you're trying to find like legitimate copies. They they cost, some of them are well over $100 if you try and look for them online. I was lucky enough to find decent deals on all of them. I still paid kind of high price on some of them, but I started playing through a little bit of them. There is something I miss about the jankiness, especially with the Dreamcast. There's something endearing about the Japanese jankiness of the Dreamcast. It's kind of this console that was sort of, it was ahead of its time, but it also came too soon, I think. I don't think the world was quite ready for a console like it, but then at the same time, it didn't quite also measure up to like the PS2, which came out shortly afterwards and dominated it. But all of these games that are on the Dreamcast, you can't find anywhere else. And there's just something endearing and goofy about the horror jankiness in them. As I play through them, I'll kind of talk more about them. I mean, I love the shitty voice acting. The sound effects are bananas. It's almost like you love like 1970s, 80s horror trash. Yeah. It's kind of that way with old horror games on consoles that aren't necessarily like the best horror games, but there's just something so endearing about how hard they're trying. Sure, yeah. So that's kind of how I feel with the Dreamcast. But the last thing I kind of want to touch on is a blank check. Listening to that Joker episode, I took your advice. I went back and am now working my way through their backlog. <laughs> okay, for clarification, I meant start with the series proper. You started with when they were a Star Wars prequels podcast. <laughs> yes, which I'm glad I did because their whole Star Wars prequel podcast was great. Yeah, it's hilarious if you like to shit on those movies like we do. <laughs> yeah, but I am actually in the middle of their M. Night Shyamalan series, which is their first big miniseries, and their first series is Blank Check. Uh, we had talked a little bit about him last recording, Yeah, and there is something hearing them go through his the way they talk through The Sixth Sense and even like elements of Unbreakable. M. Night Shyamalan, for whatever faults he has, he is great about table setting and shots, especially when it comes to unsettling the viewer. I forgot how unsettling the horror in The Sixth Sense is, and that it is straight up a horror movie. Like, I sometimes forget about that because everyone gets so wrapped up in the twist. Yeah. But it is a pretty solid horror movie unto itself. Just the scene with Haley Joel Osment trapped in that little, like, crawlspace nook, screaming, and Tony Collette like trying to get him out screaming and you don't know what's happening to him at all like you don't see anything but just that moment is so fucking terrifying yeah the little girl puking yeah the little girl ghost the ghost mother in the kitchen or the one where like the little boy talks to him and then turns around and he has a gaping head wound yeah all that stuff credits given where it's due because it is a little disappointing to see like where he went from here but through the sixth sense into unbreakable he was still like very much like that guy he's the new shit basically i forget how good of a movie the sixth sense really is it's it's nice to listen through blank check and reminisce about that i am though looking forward to like when they get to like the happening and like stuff like that well it goes back to what i said last episode i think he's genuinely still a good film 
filmmaker. Like, he's a good technician. He's a good craftsman. He needs somebody else writing for him. He needs to be either doing other people's material or he needs a co-writer. That's his issue, ultimately. But I think he's still good at the execution part of it. Right. But, yeah, if you're looking for a solid series on M. Night Shyamalan, um, I'm three episodes into Blank Check series on him, and I'm enjoying it so far. So I would recommend that. And that's kind of about it for what I have when it comes to horror stuff. Cool, cool. Well, I've got a handful of things to talk through as well that I'll try to kind of go through fairly quickly. So Heather and I watched the first episode of the Boulay Brothers' Dragula on Netflix. <laughs> Dig through the ditches and burn <laughs> through them. Yeah, that just way more fabulous. So Heather has always kind of watched Next Top Model and RuPaul's Drag Race and stuff like that. So, I mean, I see it in the background. I mean, those kinds of shows have been around forever. There's cooking shows like that that we've watched, etc. But the biggest thing that drives me crazy about all of these shows, like the ones that are shot in America specifically, is the amount of over-editing yeah. and the amount of like forced drama between all the people that are on the show. That's the stuff that I can't stand because it cuts back so much on the amount of creativity that goes into the show and you just don't see a lot of the process and a lot of the craft of like what they're doing and unfortunately that's the biggest knock that I'll give Dragula as well is they spent probably 15-20 minutes of the show just letting everybody kind of sit around and bitch at each other (laughs) but then when it comes down to like okay go create your horror drag looks they just walk out of the room and then all come back with their costumes ready to go but you don't see them actually design or build any of it there's a part where they sit down they kind of sketch out their designs and kind of loosely talk about like what their inspiration is but they don't even get all the contestants involved in that that, that's annoying because i would love to see like the creative process yes that's what i wanted to see the show for but i guess let me back up so dragula is basically rupaul's drag race but horror and it's all horror centric all the themes are horror every week it's great in that wild john waters peewee's playhouse kind of sense that i love but also like it is straight up horror like there is some wild shit in this show and some of the like elimination challenges and things like that that they do are more like horror centric so there's things i love about the show like the intro to the episodes is like kind of a riff on something from a known horror movie like the first episode of season three that's on netflix is definitely playing on like the opening of halloween four whoever gets eliminated like gets killed at the end of every episode in some kind of crazy way but some of the challenges are fucking wild like just in the first episode oh you drew the compact like makeup case that has spiders in it so guess what you're gonna eat spiders like literally like (laughs) jar of spiders dumping spiders into mouth and crunching spiders oh man that's your nightmare oh yeah the two people that were like down to elimination at the end their challenge was like cool you're gonna go skydiving and one of them was just like nope (laughs) and bounced out so <laughs> I'm curious to see what some of the rest of these challenges look like. And I really, really liked a lot of the things that they created on the show. The first big challenge was like design your own super villain kind of look. And then they had Phil Jimenez on as like one of the guest judges. So, I mean, that was kind of cool. But again, I have the same complaints that I do about so many of these kind of shows that are shot in America. And I keep saying America because The Great British Bake Off is the same kind of show, but it's fucking delightful because there's none of that like drama and cattiness none of the like hyper editing that the american shows have
have. It's just much more straightforward and you see way more of the creative process. And that's what this show is missing is just you see everybody leave and come back and then done. Their looks are like completed. You don't see any of the building. You don't see any of the like process and how they're doing everything. And you know, like with all these American shows, it's either it's not reality because it's a lot more scripted than, than they're letting on or they're just straight up getting the contestants as drunk as they possibly can to <laughs> kind of push them towards like getting dramatic or being over the top. Also too, I'm assuming the Boulay brothers are drag queens themselves. Yes. That specialize in like horror. Yes. And okay. their their looks are fantastic. Just in that first episode, the two get ups that they had were insane. And I appreciate too that they like stay in drag the entire time because most shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, for instance, you know, he's in and out depending on like what the segment of the show is but they stay like in their looks the entire time which is insane yeah but yeah lots of talented people on there and i'm really interested to kind of see where it goes i just wish that there was more of the like let's actually show them doing this instead of all the like drama so i went ahead and image searched the boule brothers like while you're talking and yeah holy shit the stuff that they do yeah there's this one and it's like a couple rows down when you google image on the first page where they're in like this venom get up except uh, they don't cover their entire face with the venom face but they do have the venom like teethy grin mouth yeah they have contacts in that make their eyes like look white and then their hair or whatever wig they're wearing this giant white wig and it looks fucking cool as hell like it's a good like rendition of a venom they would kill as even like cosplayers so a few of the people that are on the show as contestants apparently have done cosplay professionally and one of the judges that they had on the first episode was a professional cosplayer that makes a lot of sense because a lot of these images are very borderline cosplay mixed with drag race it was pretty wild enough that like i'm still interested to keep watching it but i just wish that there was more of let's show you the creative process and frankly i feel the same way about all these shows because i know a lot of guys are like oh next top model and drag race and blah 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 i enjoy watching those shows from a creative process because i'm such a artistic background person that i can still appreciate sitting down and watching somebody like design clothes and an outfit and all that just i want to see that i don't want the 40 minutes of people just complaining and throwing things at each other you know what i mean like i just don't want all that and like the hyper editing and all that bullshit that comes along with those shows like you could condense those episodes down to like the 10 minutes of creative stuff and i would be happy with that but i just wish there was more of it in the show Yeah, uh, but i'm right there with you like a lot of stuff even stuff that i don't really have an interest in i still for lack of better word attracted to passion yeah when i see people who are passionate about something and they're passionate about their craft and get really get into the creation of it i can appreciate it even if it's something i'm not really interested in because i mean shit i watch shows like this as well i mean one in particular that i can think of right at the top of my head i have no interest in weapon making or like collecting weapons but i for whatever reason fucking love forged in fire and watching these people like forge ridiculous weapons and i have no interest in being a forger myself no interest in buying swords but there's something satisfying about watching somebody who's not only good at what they do but passionate about it exactly exactly and like that's why i also appreciate rupaul that's why i appreciate all the cooking shows and i do enjoy cooking but i'm not like super passionate about it but i still fucking love all those shows they're addictive because like it's it's so creative driven and passion driven yeah Uh, overall i enjoyed dragula for like the horror aspect because it definitely is just drag race but for the horror kids and i appreciate the hell out of that i just wish there was more of we're gonna 
actually show you the creative process instead of the 40 minutes of people yelling at each other. Okay, so moving on from there, I hopped on the Criterion streaming network and they have a like glorious food collection, which is just movies that are related to food in various ways. <laughs> really? That's great. <laughs> yeah, they have lots of weirdly specific collections that are kind of themed and they'll just have a chunk of movies related to that. That's fantastic. And one thing I do appreciate about the Criterion streaming service is it's not just their titles. They have lots and lots and lots of other stuff that they keep pulling in kind of on a temporary basis. So there's a lot of stuff I've been able to watch on there that's, again, not Criterion that I wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise. But the two that I want to bring up specifically that were in this food collection, I watched The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which is a Peter Greenaway movie from, I think, 89? It's wild, and it's maybe a little more like artsy-fartsy than most people that are listening to this would probably care for, but I bring it up because there are horrific elements in this movie, and it was kind of a big controversy at the time. So the movie essentially is this, like, thug kind of guy who's playing at being artsy. He's played by Michael Gambon, and he does the thing that lots of criminals do. You know, you buy a front, so he buys this fancy schmancy restaurant. He's kind of playing himself as this gourmand kind of person, but it's just him being a fucking bore and yelling and just being awful to everybody. Helen Mirren is his wife and then she essentially meets this guy that she kind of has an affair with at the restaurant. But the whole thing is staged in a very, very, very like stage-bound play kind of way. It's massive sets, but it's all artificial. Every Everything that you're seeing, there's kind of four main sets that all flow into each other, but they're massive, massive stage-wide sets, and you're typically seeing everything filmed from very flat angles that gives it a very play-like feel, and as they transition from, like, outside the restaurant to the kitchen to the dining room, there's color changes and costume changes as they're walking from room to room, but I bring it up because this movie has lots of scatological (laughs) bits and pieces, and there's lots of weird food stuff. And definitely kind of weird, rough, insane violence and cannibalism. Michael Gambon, if all you know him from is the Harry Potter movies is Dumbledore. This is like a massive whiplash because he is just the most insane scenery chewing villain. But again, I bring it up on this show specifically because it's wild. It got an X rating from the MPAA when it came out. And (laughs) when I said scatological earlier, I literally meant it. There's like a weird kind of connection between sex and food and like shitting and murder. Like there's just like this weird like circle of all of these things kind of in the movie and there's lots of symbolic things happening and I keep going back to shitting but like there's lots of characters moving from like the kitchen to the dining room to the bathroom as they're having these conversations and these interactions and Helen Mirren and the guy that's like her lover character can't remember his name like they are literally having sex like in all of these different places and 
and it literally just goes to murder and cannibalism and all these other like insane degrees but yeah the movie was originally given an x rating and they had the option to either roll that x rating and basically not get shown in any theaters or just go out unrated and get put in very very few theaters but i watched it because i heard that the version that was on the criterion streaming network was the original unrated version and i've only ever really seen the u.s rated r cut so it was definitely a lot more wild than i remember it being but it's very interesting if you just appreciate filmmaking craft and kind of seeing like what they're doing and how they're putting that together and you appreciate performances because again everybody in that movie is over the top right but this was also at a time where like tim roth was basically an unknown kieran hines is also in it when he was very young and pretty much unrecognizable people now would know him from like game of thrones and stuff like that but yeah it's that movie was fucking bananas i also rewatched delicatessen uh which is a jean-pierre Jeunet movie the guy who did amelie and city of lost children and long engagement and stuff like that this is like a weird french i guess maybe set during wartime kind of movie slightly like apocalyptic about this dilapidated falling apart apartment building where there is a butcher shop at the bottom of it and then all the people that live above it and the butcher is essentially taking in drifters that are coming through needing a place to stay and work and he's murdering them chopping them up and like giving the meat to all the people in the building so the demon barber basically similar yes but it's also very very comedic and it's very fantastical there's definitely like a magic realism kind of thing to it the camera work in it is wild it's serious kanji there's just moments of like characters are having sex and the springs in the bed and then that syncs up with like somebody else like whacking a carpet and getting the dust off and then somebody else painting and somebody else popping something and like all these things like sync together throughout the apartment building but then yeah they're murdering people and eating them it's one of those wild special effect movies that you know from a production design standpoint it's crazy that that movie ever got made but that's definitely worth checking out if you want something that's maybe a little more comedic but still has a very dark edge to it from there i watched larry fessenden's new movie depraved he's gonna be in this movie so we'll get back around to him in a minute but i kind of wanted to go ahead and check it out since we were doing this episode tonight depraved is his movie from this past year which is essentially a modern take on the frankenstein story interesting i enjoyed it it's modern day new york this time the dr frankenstein character is a war vet he is basically trying to kind of figure out a way to like help soldiers who have either like lost limbs or have died or whatever like come back and so that's kind of the whole impetus of i'm gonna create life and so he stitches together this body and actually manages to develop this drug with one of his partners in the pharmaceutical industry and they come up with this drug to bring this body back to life but it's a very interesting take on the story it becomes more straightforward to the beats of the frankenstein story as the movie goes on but it starts in a very interesting place and i i just liked fessenden's style of directing i like his little montages and his little animated sequences and just things that he kind of overlays in the editing that's all very interesting his music choices are great and it was just it was a lot more heartfelt than i figured it would be but i enjoyed it a good bit it's on hulu if anybody wants to check it out i also watched elvira mistress of the dark again <laughs> I just, nice. I threw that on in the background while I was doing some other stuff. 
stuff. And man, that movie like is just rapid fire as far as the jokes go. Every other line is some kind of pun or one-liner about tits or blowjobs or whatever. Elvira, I'm sorry. Are you all right? Yeah, I think so. How's your head? I haven't had any complaints yet. It's so fun because it's just this weird outsider blows into the small town where all the people are kind of stuck up and square. And so she, you know, shakes things up a little bit. Cassandra Peterson seems like she genuinely has a good time being Elvira. Totally. Half totally. the time I feel like stuff that I've seen her in, she is almost improving some of those puns. Because <laughs> like Elvira's like every other line is a fucking sex pun. I yeah. swear. That movie's a lot of fun. I think I stumbled across it on like maybe two be TV, but it's it's on a bunch of streaming services right now. Arrow just did a really nice restoration of it that they put out in the UK. I'm hoping that we get a US version of it on Blu-ray sometime soon. But I think what I watched was probably that HD transfer because it looked pretty good. <laughs> then I watched The Prophecy, which this is the movie you mentioned earlier with Pizza Bear. <laughs> Man, that clip. Uh, so you got to explain the clip. Yeah. Jesus Christ, it's fantastic. So this is an eco-terror movie from the 70s that I remember watching on I think Sci-Fi Channel when I was growing up. It's about this doctor guy and he and his wife, played by Talia Shire, they go up to Maine where he is going to basically write this giant EPA report because there is a logging company, paper mill kind of thing that's wanting to exploit this giant chunk of land up in Maine but the Native American tribes that are up there have all kind of gotten together and said, no, fuck off. This is our land. This is our heritage. No, you have no right to it. So you have these two groups clashing and he is going to go up there basically to write a report that kind of says, well, yeah, the environmental impact is bad. So yeah, the mill can go fuck off or no, everything's on the up and up and the Native Americans just have to deal with it, whatever, you know? So he kind of takes it as like this, you know, like this will give me something worthwhile to spend my time doing because I don't feel like I'm making an impact where I am. So they go up there, they start looking around little by little, they figure out, yeah, the paper mill's fucking things up in the environment and putting all these chemicals out there and it's causing all these weird mutations in the animals and the plants and essentially it boils down to there is a giant mutant bear that is murdering people <laughs> but imagine a bear if a bear was just made out of sloppy melty pizza that's what they have affectionately referred to it as on the shockwaves podcast and a couple of other places is just pizza bear but there is a scene that is bananas and I don't remember this scene but I literally had to like rewind it four or five times when I watched it the other day. There's this family camping and they're all sleeping in their sleeping bags and the bear attacks and one of the kids gets up in his sleeping bag still and the bear swats him and just like a million miles an hour this kid gets flung against this tree and just explodes. Literally explodes. The entire fucking sleeping bag explodes and all these feathers go everywhere and it was the most insane bullshit. I, I first laugh when I first see the kid because the kid is just sitting there screaming wrapped up like a taquito and yeah. fucking <laughs> hopping around <laughs> yeah yeah that was that was great that was probably the second best <laughs> sleeping bag kill i've ever seen second only to the one from friday the 13th like what part seven but yeah prophecy was kind of wild it does crack me up you know we still talk about climate change and we still talk about all this bullshit and corporations dumping chemicals into the environment and how all that's bad and we've been talking about it in 
been talking about it and people just don't seem to want to fucking listen. This movie is from like the mid 70s and they're still talking about like, yeah, mercury from this factory is getting into the fish that we're eating and that's causing birth defects. No shit. We knew about this that long ago, yet we're still like not really making enough headway on like getting that shit fixed. Whatever, you know? Yeah, we're just waiting for pizza bears to show up and God, again, just I rewatched that clip like three or four times. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the movie's pretty good. It's fairly straightforward for the first hour and then the rest of the movie is just pizza bear attacking over and over. But yeah, it's pretty fun. It's a John Frankenheimer movie too, which is kind of wild. But yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. It was just as fun as I remember it being. <laughs> Last yeah. thing that I want to bring up, since we already talked East of West, there is a Hulu movie that was part of their Into the Dark series where they, it's basically an anthology where every month they were putting out a new movie, like an actual feature length movie. Sometimes it was kind of themed around whatever month they were releasing it on. Um, like if there was like a holiday or something like that. But the one that I have heard the most people talk about and specifically say like this is by far the best one is All That We Destroy, which is Chelsea Stardust's technically first movie because it came out last year along with Satanic Panic. Right. But All That We Destroy is the only the kind of nutshell I'll give is like it's near future. This woman who's a geneticist is cloning this girl over and over and over that her son murdered and she thinks it's going to be some kind of therapeutic let me work my son's serial killer budding behaviors out by letting him just murder this girl over and over and over again. Bold move cotton. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that's kind of the gist of the story. But it was very interesting. I think it was very very well made. Chelsea Stardust did a great job. The premise is very interesting in terms of like what do you do if your kid is just kind of fucked up and you don't know how to deal with that or if you see behaviors like how do you approach that and not just my kid has bad behaviors but oh there might be something legitimately wrong here do you seek outside help do you try to fix it what do you do in that kind of weird situation but the performances in it were great it was a very good looking movie for what I'm sure like this is a Blumhouse thing so I'm sure like each movie was probably made for like a mil or less you know so for like that kind of budget this movie looked very very good there were some visual effects in it that looked really good this was a good example of and i think this is like a larry fessenden thing don't write a five million dollar script if you know your budget is only like fifty thousand dollars write the best fifty thousand dollar script that you possibly can so like this movie is very much that it's maximizing on all the resources that they had available again chelsea stardust did a crazy good job directing this movie and i'm really excited now to see satanic panic once it's up on vod that's crazy that if it worked with a tight budget and it took on something like the idea of cloning like a very science fiction trope and you would think that you would need a lot of a budget at least for the effects on that so i'm pretty curious to check this movie out and i liked it because it does hand wave away a lot of things and it doesn't have to get bogged down in the minutiae of okay why is it that every 
time they clone this girl, she's at this exact age and her hair is this long already. Does the mom just keep buying the same clothes over and over to put this girl in or do they reuse the same clothes? You know, like there's lots of nitpicky questions like that where if you start looking for answers, you're going to be disappointed. But the movie does a great job of just saying, don't worry about it. You know, like move on. Don't focus on all this minutia bullshit. We can clone and we're cloning this girl. Deal with it. And I, I like that. Yeah, I wish more movies were confident and just hand waving. Yeah. Just trust the audience. Movies just need to trust their audiences more. Yeah, totally. So that's all I got. So real quick before we get into this uh, little next small discussion, let's take a pause real quick and hear from our friends at Nightmare Threads. What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! All right, so quick discussion before we hop into this movie. Um, Now that we're like deep into recording already, this movie that we're discussing is about a couple moving into a new house and there being some things left behind. So have you ever lived somewhere where you have found weird, questionable bits and pieces left behind from the previous owners? So not necessarily in a place that I lived, but it was definitely a place that I think I was helping someone move into. And it was sometime after Katrina. I think we were already in college. So it was like someone either renting a house uh, with some roommates or an apartment or something. I just remember we're cleaning it out moving in and the actual entrance into the attic is like through a closet if that makes any sense yeah i remember going in one of those and it was empty like the people before either they had nothing in there or they had cleaned everything out with the exception that in the corner were like three or four hanging at first we didn't know what the fuck it was so we got closer the first thing was a doll's head was one of the things hanging (laughs) oh yeah then each other thing hanging was each of its limbs excellent (laughs) no torso no the torso was missing the four limbs were there and the head was there no torso who the fuck knows like uh, we were pretty (laughs) sure that whoever it was was probably doing it as like a prank or something maybe because it was very much like a college kids type of area people constantly moving in and out of but uh, you never know with that kind of stuff and i was like nah i would i wouldn't live here so the house that we live in now the people that lived here before us this is a three-bedroom house It's not small, but it's not big. It's kind of a medium-sized house. Right. They had five kids living in this house. I think two kids in each of the bedrooms and then a baby that was maybe like still in the parents' room. We have found and continue to find so many toys and like random odds and ends hidden around the house and in the yard. The other disturbing thing is the husband was a hunter. And when I say a hunter, 
Hunter, I mean, like, they had deer heads up on the wall when we, like, toured the house, and he had a gun rack built into his closet. Right. Bullets. We find cartridges and shells everywhere. We found 22 cartridges in the, like, gas fireplace. (laughs) What? In yeah. the gas fireplace? In the fireplace. You know, it's like a fake gas fireplace, but still, like, the heat and everything else? What the fuck? I have found so many cartridges in the yards that I'm just terrified one of these days. I'm going to run over one with the lawnmower, and it's going to just blast my leg off. But anyway, we keep finding little bits and pieces like that around the house in the yard. When we first got here, my youngest brother, Josiah, he came up to like hang out for a day and kind of help unpack. We went up in the attic and the attic access is through the garage. He kind of went up and just stuck his hand up in the top with his phone and just kind of recorded all around just to kind of see what was up there first. Oh God. And we look at the recording Recording And of course, it's like the most horror movie, look in a dark attic, found footage bullshit. But then eventually he spins his phone around and we're like, wait, what is that? The phone kind of circles back around eventually. And it's this baby car seat stroller thing. Oh, God. That is just like sitting up there covered in dust and spider webs turned around backward. And we were just like, oh, no. And he gets up there. He was like, oh, shit, there's crayon drawings all over the, like, floorboards and, uh, like, like kids' drawings. And he, like, went over and, like, spun the, like, baby carrier thing around. And, you know, it was empty, of course. But Thank it was Christ. just one of those, what the fuck is going on up here, man? Dog, you live you live in the sinister house. Yeah, we definitely, like, spooked ourselves for a hot minute in the middle of an afternoon. But, yeah, there's lots of remnants of this family still around that we keep finding. Again, just kids' toys, bullet shells, and cartridges, and just all kinds of shit all over the place still. But yeah, they're like kid drawings in the attic. What? And like, again, this is not an attic that you can get to from the inside of the house. It's through the garage on one of those rickety pull-down ladder things. How did the kids get up there? (laughs) Sure, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. So... All that said, this week's movie that we're going to be discussing is from 2015. It is directed by Ted Gagan. Gagan nailed sure. it. Um, I have not heard anybody like actually pronounce his name. I don't think so. Apologies for that. He kind of wrote, produced, and directed some stuff in like the German underground horror scene, which is interesting. But he, this is kind of his American debut. Um, he also has done Mohawk. And he has a story by credit for Satanic Panic, which I mentioned a second ago, which is Chelsea Stardust's new movie. The movie is called We Are Still Here. The, the realtor told you all about the Dagmars, huh? Yes, that was the family who first lived here, right? We heard it was a funeral parlor around the turn of the century. Yeah. Don't say Old Dagmar had been running the bodies and burying empty coffins. Wasn't long after that that the uh, the trouble began. You're not leaving here. Fight it. Just accept. 
accepted. You stay, you satisfy the darkness. You guys have moved in to one weird fucking town. Spooky. So, uh, like Aaron, you've you've mentioned spiders and like horror, like the strangers is what gets under your skin. This is really the first movie since Autopsy of Jane Doe that nailed all the things that terrify me. You sent me a few messages that were like, "Bruh, I'm actually kind of scared to start this, bro. What <laughs> yeah, am I getting into?" <laughs> exactly, and I'm proud of myself. I was able to get through it, but it was a pretty solid scare for me. There were some jump scares. I was expecting more jump scares if I was being honest with you, but I was also expecting this to terrify the shit out of me, which it did a good job of scaring me, but it made effective use of jump scares. It has more than most of the movies we've covered so far, I'd say. It does all the tropes of a haunted house movie to a T, and that's the thing. This movie is very, very like classic trope heavy, but it's just done in such a way that it's great. Overall, I like this movie. This movie, I was kind of shocked at how short it felt. It felt like it, you could have on maybe a little bit more to it but yeah. hey it's a tight 84 minutes it's surprising how low the budget feels but at the same time the budget that they have talking about making use of what you have it feels like they did a great job the money is well spent once yes. you see what it was spent on exactly the special effects and like some of the stuff that happens later look fantastic so if that's where they put the majority of the money cool because that stuff worked yeah for the most part overall I liked the acting uh, Barbara Crampton especially did a good job in this film. Some of the acting, though, does at parts get over the top, but I'll talk about that Like once we get to certain characters. This is a pretty scary movie. I could sleep afterwards, but there were definitely those moments of like, I need to go upstairs and go to bed now. It's like one or two in the morning. Like, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to because a smoke ghost is going to come and impale me through my stomach. I really appreciated the like feel and the tone of this movie. The pacing, it's all very fulci. And a lot of, a lot of newer movies especially have a more Argento vibe. If we're going to go for like something that's very distinct visually, tonally, lots of people go for Argento. Lots of people go for like big saturated colors and lots of like over the top production design and a heightened score. You know, usually something that's kind of electronic or psychedelic or whatever. You know, like the synth wave carpenter thing is definitely like made a huge comeback. You know, so people are generally emulating Argento or Carpenter or something like that in terms of like feel this movie to me is just dripping in Fulci vibes it has a very like house by the cemetery kind of vibe to it it's very paced it has a dreamlike kind of quality to it there's like a weird kind of dread and unsettling undercurrent to the entire movie and I like it because you don't always know where characters are coming from you don't always know like all the background stuff it's just kind of thrown at you in that dream logic kind of way where you know while you're in the middle of the 
this dream? Why is this blah, 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 blah? And who are these people? And then maybe it pops up and they say, oh, well, just by the way, this, you know? But it, it's not so surreal and broken. Like, it, it still feels like a, a cohesive story start to Very finish. Very much so, yeah. But uh, but yes, I do understand, like, the dreamlike feeling that it portrays. And if anything, to me, it almost feels like take some elements of paranormal activity, but don't make it like a found footage movie, but actually show the thing causing it. You just see things happening, but you never see the actual creature or ghost or whatever it is. Whereas with this, it's a slow burn, pun intended, slow burn. But from the very beginning, you see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Like you see things happening and it has like paranormal activity vibes because like stuff will move and shit by itself. But then like slowly it builds to you actually seeing the ghost causing it. And goddamn, the actual, like, creature design, ghost design. It's so good. Oh, my God. It's fucking creepy as hell. It's so effective. Yeah. I would say that this is a solid horror movie, like, straight up in terms of, like, ghosts. Like, if ghosts scare you, you're going to get fucking scared by this movie. Like, this is not a a beginner's horror movie, I would say. Um, Also, surprisingly gory as well. There were a lot, that like, towards the end of the movie, there's quite a bit of gore that I was not expecting to happen. Yes. It's pretty gnarly in the best kind of way um again very fulci <laughs> it's it's very fulci it's very like toby hooper the gore is very matter of fact but it's also just very like shocking so for our listeners who maybe aren't as educated in horror calling it fulci what exactly would you say that means well uh, so lucio fulci he's kind of the other big italian horror movie maestro which we'll definitely get into some of his movies maybe pretty soon but his movies, The Beyond, The House by the Cemetery, all of that kind of weird stuff, Zombie, he has a very, very kind of dreamlike, slightly gauzy, hazy kind of feel to his movies, where they are not always the most explicit in giving you background and explanation of things. Like, things just kind of happen, and you kind of either have to, like, interpret or assume not everything is just kind of spoon-fed to you. That goes back to my point earlier of, like, I wish more movies just hand-waved stuff. This is a movie you're going along with it instead of it sitting you down and doing exposition dumps. Yeah. Which, and I'd say that the best, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the best horror stories, specifically ghost stories, have a touch of reality and heart to it. And without giving away spoilers just yet, this movie very much has a realistic tragedy as the backdrop that a lot of people in real life deal with. And that kind of ties it in with the ghost story. Does Fulci happen to do that a lot in his films? Because I'll admit I haven't seen much by, uh, if anything, by him. Not really. Fulci definitely is more exploitation than anything. Ah, okay, gotcha. Which we're talking like 70s, 80s Italian horror. So it all is very rooted in exploitation cinema to begin with. But his movies are, again, like often graphically exploitative in their violence and some of the sexuality, depending on like which movie we're talking about. To give you an idea, like Zombie, and for people who are like kind of already seasoned horror watchers, they'll they'll know these movies that I'm talking about about, but Italian horror in general is something that you kind of have to be very open to, because a lot of people just get turned off by it, because the pacing is weird, there's definitely a heightened sense of reality to all of it, like, none of it's grounded, it's all fucking, like, wild, esoteric, kind of dream logic nonsensical, often, but Fulci specifically, like, there's such a creeping dread kind of vibe to his 
movies. Zombies specifically is the kind of movie where you'll just see the zombies walking towards you slowly and then it just cuts to the character screaming and then them walking slowly and the character still standing there screaming and you know there's so many instances of just get up and run but the characters just scream and it just cuts closer and closer and closer and it's like <laughs> that kind of thing you know like Austin Powers with the steam roller essentially yeah with the guy just standing there screaming move out of the way there's a scene from zombie specifically that's very famous where well there's a scene very famously where a zombie fights a shark but that's like a whole different thing Fuck yeah. but there's a scene where the zombie like busts its hand through this like slatted door grabs this woman by the hair and is just pulling her head toward this giant splinter in the door and you just see her head get slowly pulled toward the door as she's screaming and then this splinter like go into her eye but it's done in the most drawn out it's 45 fucking seconds of this woman screaming while her head is being like pulled toward this door so it's it's very weird in that sense and I'm not saying that this movie is slow but this movie just kind of has that dreamlike quality to it the violence is very shocking some of the like connections are not quite explicitly there until characters maybe give some dialogue exposition dumps but it's just enough information for you to like kind of have a vague idea of what it is without having to go into a lot of the like why per se so I appreciate the movie from that standpoint just I like the vibe and the feel of it in general anyway the performances I dig even if they're not necessarily all on the same level which that's kind of the thing I would say is I don't think any of the performances in this movie are bad per se but some of the performances are in a different movie than what this movie is there's one in particular that I can think of that and I think I know exactly who you're talking yeah. about which yeah. We'll, yeah we'll get to that but yeah I, I definitely dig the look of this movie this was one that when it came out a couple of years ago you know it came out in 2015 but I think I saw it first in 2016 I had heard so many good things about it just on the the festival circuit that it, I think it was like literally $7.99 for the Blu-ray on Amazon I was like you know what fuck it bye and I do not regret it because I've watched it a few times since then and shown it to different people and it, it's always one that like does well with a crowd for sure it feels like a low budget kind of independent in some instances but otherwise it doesn't have the art horror element I guess of some more independent horror movies yeah this movie is almost a master at the basics to me absolutely it doesn't reinvent the wheel at all in terms of the ghost story but it does all the basics and all of the fundamentals so well that I don't care if it's like treading the same ground but yeah that's that's kind of how I felt is not only is the feeling foreboding but the actual weather around them it in this case it being kind of a tundra and like a small town that has a weird thing going on in it check a dark history of an otherwise unsuspecting house check it checks off all the all the stuff for like a classic ghost story that is the other thing too is when we were watching this because we want kind of wanted to try and do this one maybe a little bit earlier but then we decided to have lauren on and i'm glad that we are recording it where it'll come out in february because this movie has just such a winter feel to it absolutely not christmas not holiday just yeah winter yeah just cold. winter in general and it i think of like late january is when this movie took place in my mind yeah and i was a little kind of bummed out because it like hasn't been snowing here lately and then today as we're recording it's like it's out there snowing and icing over perfect setup for where this movie takes place yeah so let's actually get started right 
there. So, like usual, before uh, we dig into it, if you want to not be spoiled, here's where you would pause it and watch it yourself come back. Like I said, this is a scary ghost story. It's probably not as scary as some other movies or TV shows. And see, I, I like this movie because, again, just the differences in you and I, the supernatural stuff doesn't necessarily get to me, but this was way more fun to me. Fun in like a fuck yeah, like kind of way, like, oh yeah, that was cool, or, you know, yeah. oh yeah, I can't wait for this part, like, you know, I know this is probably going to be coming, like, for me, this was way more of just like a fuck yeah, like, kind of good ghost story. See, for me, it was more of, uh, not dour, but like, dread-inducing story that's also pretty tragic as yeah. well. It depends on your outlook. Either it's going to be a fun thrill ride, or it'll be a dark movie that, that might lean on you a little bit. For me, it was more of a darker, scarier movie. I'll leave it at that, but I was able to get through it. I, it did scare me. I still, like, you know, there were moments where I did feel like going upstairs by myself, but I, I still did it anyway. Like, I got through it. So, if I can get through it, I think most of y'all can get through it, but it is a solid scare. <laughs> With that, we will get into the movie. So, kind of going back to the whole, like, desolate winter kind of feel, we kind of open with this montage of this couple driving to this new house, and they're driving through this very, very snow-covered, desolate, rural farm area. Is this movie supposed to take place in the late 70s or, like, early 80s? So, when I first saw the movie, I didn't know explicitly, like, what is the time period supposed to be? It does feel a little timeless, yeah. Yeah, the clothing and the cars are all kind of dated, but I didn't know for sure what kind of time frame, but according to, like, Wikipedia and IMDb and all these other sources, it's, like, late 70s. Okay, that makes sense, but, like, it, it's just shot in such a way that it doesn't call attention to the time period it's in. Yeah. And it, it feels timeless. It also doesn't call attention to where it's set specifically, because if you had just asked me, I would have said, oh, yeah, this is fucking Ohio, because it has that same exact kind of look and vibe of Ohio farmland that my dad's family's from. And I mean, I've been up there when it looks like this, but apparently the movie is set in rural New England. Yeah, for some reason, I thought it took place in like northern New York state, you know, where it's more desolate, where there yeah. are actual small towns. And there are a few references to like, oh yeah, we drove in from the city or whatever. I, I picked up more of it this time. And there's definitely not any of that like Midwestern accent going on. You know, there's none of that Fargo like, oh gosh, kind of thing. Right. But anyway, yeah, we, we see this couple. They are driving to this house and we kind of gradually learn that they are moving to this new house out in the country because they have recently suffered a tragedy where they have lost their son. And so they are basically getting away from like their home and their life that they knew. They're kind of going to start over a little bit. And so they're moving to this house kind of out in the middle of nowhere to kind of have their grieving period. The wife, Anne, specifically is having a really, really hard time with it. And so this is more of a therapy thing for her where they kind of figure, let's get away from everything. Let's live here for a little while and maybe that will do some good. And that, that was what I was referring to with the best ghost stories having some real life shit happening yeah. as well, like whether it's heart or family or what have you. And this is what I was referring to. Like that is something that is very much unfortunately a tragedy that a lot of people have dealt with and still deal with, like the loss of a, a child. And the thing too is because you, like, you're kind of getting bits and pieces of information while they're talking to each other. Their son's name is Bobby and he was involved in just some non-specific car crash that took his life. And you later on see like a picture of him and he looked like he was college age. 
He yeah. was already left the house and while he was in college, he died in a car crash. So it's even more of a gut check. Uh, well, I, I don't want to say even more of a gut check, but it is kind of all one of those strange things of being like, oh, my son has almost reached adulthood. You're caught in this part in your life where you are fully expecting your child to be the one to bury you, not you bury your child. Yeah. The son's definitely college age for sure, because one of his like college friends gets into the story a little bit later. But Anne, the wife, is Barbara Crampton, which she's horror royalty. She's been in all kinds of shit from the 80s, like Reanimator and From Beyond, Body Double, Castle Freak, Puppet Master, Chopping Mall. She kind of had a lull in her career as well, where she was just living life, raising a family. But she got back into acting a couple years ago and had has been doing insane amounts of work from then on. She's actually produced a lot of stuff as well in the last couple of years, but in the last few years, she's been in things like Your Next and Beyond the Gates and Sunchoke. She was also in one of the Hulu Into the Dark movies, like I brought up a second ago. So she's been putting in a ton of work recently, specifically in a lot of like horror and horror adjacent genre stuff and a lot of independent things. I'm sorry, did you mention that she was also in Channel Zero? No, I didn't. I, I, I probably mentioned it when I brought it up a while back, but yeah, she was in season four of Channel Zero. So yeah, Barbara Crampton's great. She's fantastic in this movie. Her husband in the movie, Paul, is played by Andrew Sensenig, and he's been in a bunch of independent stuff as well, but notably he was in Shane Carruth's Upstream Color, which I get that Shane Carruth is maybe a little more artsy-fartsy than most people would like, but you can't deny that Primer was not an incredible movie when it came out for what it did and the budget and everything else, but I really like upstream color regardless he was also in the show mindhunter which we have definitely talked about on this podcast and he was in netflix's daredevil show as well so they're the main couple that were following through this movie apparently the roles were specifically written for them paul definitely has some serious daniel stern vibes going on which kind of cracked <laughs> me up that's all i could think about was just like where's the other wet bandit yeah he, he he's like a wet bandit who's trying to be serious. intellectual yeah yeah <laughs> But yeah, there's definitely the whole intellectual couple from the big city coming out to this rural town and a lot of these, you know, simple rural country folk don't like them here, right? So there's definitely like that kind of vibe that's going on from the get-go. And I would say Barbara Crampton does a better job than him at showing parents and still in grief or like maybe at the at what they think is supposed to be the end stages of grief, but she's definitely still depressed about it and has spiraled kind of into I think it's just more that she's way more in that than he is at the moment. I mean, that's part of the reason why they're like right. moving out to the country and doing all this because she's just so much more affected by it in general than he was. Or at least like she's not moving on and he has already. But you can tell that he's like still affected by it and he's more now affected by like how it's affecting her. So anyway, we see Anne unpacking and she specifically is unpacking a box of things that belong to their son. And she suddenly hears these like loud footsteps in the house. <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah, right away. Like weird shit's happening. And again, this is like a rural farmhouse. Very like small, quaint, cozy house in this desolate snowscape 
of farmland. So she walks around trying to figure out where the footsteps are coming from. She doesn't quite find anything, but she ends up down in the basement. And this is one of those basements that's like stone wall, dirt floor. Yeah. Old, old school. school like yeah. dirt kind of basement, not a finished nice basement. And while she's down there, the baseball that was in the box of her son's belongings upstairs that she was unpacking, that baseball like bounces and rolls down the wooden stairs, right? And we kind of see this shadowy figure standing behind her in the darkness of the basement. So right off the bat, here's here's some old school ghost tropes happening yeah. right here. So Anne kind of starts getting the idea that maybe their son Bobby is somehow in this house with them and that like his presence has kind of followed them. And we know as an audience like it ain't Bobby. Like, you kind of know already from the get-go, it is not her son that's with them in this No house. way, Jose. Yeah. 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 But she kind of thinks it's Bobby, right? And these little coincidences keep happening that kind of are tied to him, right? And again, Paul is just kind of brushing it all off. So that night, they are greeted by two of their neighbors, Dave and Kat McCabe. Dave is played by Monty Markham, who's one of these that guy character actors who has been in like every fucking TV show from the 60s to now. Yeah. yeah. He's 84 years old and he's still acting. Yeah. So this was the guy I wanted to talk about. He kind of hams it up a little bit in this movie. And I texted you about this. Picture the guy from Pet Cemetery, the one from like the 80s or 90s. And that's kind of what he's acting like in this. You know, like the, oh, you don't want to go down that road. That road will lead you to the bridge is made of bones. And yeah, <laughs> sometimes dead is uh, better. He does kind of have that Fred Gwynn kind of feel to him. Yeah. He's a little bit like foreboding from the beginning. Don't go down that road. But yeah, they kind of pop up at their house, um, ring the doorbell. Hey, it's late. Uh, we weren't expecting anybody. Hey, yeah, we just decided to drop by unannounced because we saw lights on. You know, so there's like an awkward introduction a little bit. And basically, it just ends with Dave, you know, kind of threateningly, forebodingly saying like, you know, you probably need to get out of this house. You probably shouldn't be here. Y'all probably just need to go back where you came from, right? He, he's So the way he's telling it is he's like, it's still very much, because this is kind of like, I guess, a little bit of exposition, but at least just kind of telling you like why this house is kind of as foreboding as it is. And maybe yeah. there's already ghost activity because he explains that this house was built in the 1800s by a family known as the Dagmar family and that it, some people say it was a funeral home. They ran this funeral home out of their own home, house. And the Dagmars were reportedly run out of the village uh, when townspeople were discovering that they were swindling customers by selling their corpses and just burying empty caskets. He ends the conversation saying like, this is very much still their house, which is kind of like the foreboding thing. But then his wife who has been kind of quiet and nervous this entire time, as they're leaving she like shakes Anne's hand and like literally hands her a piece of paper saying like, get out of the house. Yeah. Dave specifically when he's kind of given them the exposition dump, which I love that again, like, hi, we're your new neighbors. Let me tell you all about the awful shit that happened in this house that you're living in now right away before we like get any further. Yeah. That's why this character is the one I want to focus on because he makes some choices in this movie. Yeah. Well, I I really honestly like his performance. It's fun, but uh, yeah, it is. It is. But yeah, one fun bit. He mentioned 
mentioned specifically that the Dagmars sold the body to the university over in Essex County, which that is a specific H.P. Lovecraft reference to Miskatonic University. So that was just like a fun little Easter egg kind of hidden in there. But I also love like, you know, his last words, again, just him being super ominous. And I'm paraphrasing. I didn't write down exactly what it was, but it's something like, you know, it's been 30 years since fresh souls were in this house. And then the Paul, the husband says, well, it's our house now. And Dave just looks at him and goes, no, it's still Dagmar's house. Yeah. <laughs> like, what a fucked up, wild, crazy thing to say to somebody. Because I'm assuming this is like either their first night there or their first week there at least. Yeah. So the uh, furnace in the house is kind of making like a weird smoky smell since they moved in. And um, we see Paul on the phone talking to whatever maintenance company and basically just saying like, you know, the furnace is still fucked up. Send somebody else out here because we're still smelling smoke. And anytime we're down there, it feels unbearably hot. Yeah, man. So just throughout this movie, this furnace, it's straight up like if the furnace from Home Alone was actually haunted, (laughs) it also kind of reminded me of um the furnace and black coat's daughter yeah so Anne kind of roundabout tells Paul that she has invited her friends May and Jacob Lewis to the house. And they're both these kind of hippie spiritualists, etc. And Paul's kind of like, uh, you know, like kind of rolling his eyes a little bit. You know, it's like, okay, you, you called them up here. All right, sure. And Anne thinks like maybe they can help her contact Bobby because she's still convinced that whatever is in this house is their son, right? And she just will, like, she's so tunnel visioned on like that's gotta be what it is so she invited her friends up there and is again kind of telling Paul like oh yeah by the way they're coming to stay with us and then didn't she also invite or was it her friends that invited their son to come as well because their son was friends with Bobby yeah so she invited the two friends and they also kind of suggested like hey maybe our son should also come because he was best friends with y'all's son Bobby and so maybe having him here will also help create some kind of connection. So we then meet May and Jacob Lewis as they're driving to the house. And I love this couple, uh, even though like they're kind of the two wild characters for this movie, but I just, I like these two people so much. But Jacob is played by Larry Fessenden, who I mentioned earlier and was also mentioned in the last episode. Session nine, he was the poor guy who got killed at the end. Yeah, but Larry Fessenden is one of these guys who has always kind of been around in modern independent horror. He had a movie in the 90s called Habit, which is a New York-based vampire movie, but kind of has an edge of, like, drug addiction story parallel to it. He also directed stuff like Wendigo, which is very much, like, along the same lines of this movie in terms of the feel and the vibe. He was in The Battery, Session 9, Carnage Park, Darling, The Transfiguration, The Mind's Eye, Southbound. And he's still writing and acting, and a lot of it in video games now, because he did once again, he does Man of Medan. Until Dawn. Until Dawn, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, which Until Dawn specifically has this like snowy, desolate vibes to it. But yeah, this role was also specifically like written for him. Do yourself a favor and look up his Wikipedia article because the picture they use makes him look like Jack Nicholson in The totally. Shining. <laughs> yeah, that's always kind of the joke is he just looks like an even crazier Jack Nicholson. And then May is played by Lisa Marie, which Lisa Marie was kind of 
Tim Burton's muse during the like mid to late 90s and into the early 2000s. She was in Ed Wood. She played Vampira in that. She was also in Mars Attacks. Uh, she was like the sexy giant bouffant hair alien that like ended up in the White House undercover. She was in Sleepy Hollow. She played Ichabod Crane's mother in the flashback scenes. So she has this very strange ethereal quality to her. And I believe she was a model for a while as well, but she just has such a strange and interesting presence, and she's been in so many kind of wild out there movies as these different characters that it was very refreshing to kind of see her, like, playing like, for who she is in this movie not done up all crazy. A fun connection, too, she was also apparently in Lords of Salem, which was Rob Zombie's movie that he did after the Halloween remake. I really like Lords of Salem a lot. I have, like, some nitpicks with it, but I kind of did a little bit of backtracking on this because Barbara Crampton was technically also in Lords of Salem, but her scenes got cut. And so I kind of think that Lisa Marie might have been in some of the same scenes and she was also cut because I do not remember her being in the movie at all. In general, the movie is Sherry Moon Zombie is a DJ at this radio station and they get this weird cryptic package that has this record from a band called the Lords of Salem that's going to be playing, but they put it on. It's just this crazy, like, droney, satanic bullshit. But it kind of awakens this spirit within her, and there's maybe, like, witches living in her apartment building, and all this deeper level shit going on. But Barbara Crampton, and I would assume Lisa Marie, probably also both played some of these witches, and their scenes were just cut. And again, wrapping back around to, like, what I was mentioning earlier about Fulci, Lords of Salem is definitely some Fulci, just in general, in terms of, like, the tone and the feel of that movie, for sure. Right. So, anyway, yeah, it was fun to see Lisa Marie, and she's maybe, I think, the weakest link as far as acting in this movie goes, because her line delivery is kind of off in a lot of places, but, you know, she doesn't necessarily have as much of an acting background as everybody else necessarily, and, like, even, well, I don't know, because she was very, very good in Ed Wood as Vampira. I think she is probably a good actress, but she has that ethereal quality to her, like, where, even though I don't necessarily like her actual acting, her presence in this movie is enjoyable, and her husband, Larry Fessenden, definitely is the better actor of the two, I would say, in this. But he's also hamming it up so much He's more. hamming it up, yeah. And I think Lisa Marie's line deliveries, even though they're kind of weirdly flat, I think they work for, like, what type of character she's playing, because she's supposed to be playing this kind of spiritualist person that you can tell probably believes their bullshit a little too much. Yeah, she seems like kind of not airheaded, but spacey. And he is kind of like, well, I'm down for this kind of shit, too. He's along for the ride, yeah. I want to have a good time, basically, is kind of his whole thing he's putting down. And a funny thing is, We Are Still Here is actually one of the last movies she's done, because she hasn't really done anything since 2015 um, when this movie came out. She was in a couple other things that year, I think, too, if I remember reading her IMDb. But yeah, hopefully she's in something else soon. I'd like to see her continue acting. Yeah. So we then kind of cut back to the house and we see the technician that has arrived to check on the furnace and he goes downstairs. (laughs) This poor guy. (laughs) Yeah. He goes downstairs, is kind of looking around. There's like a weird hole in the wall where the old foundation used to be. That's kind of this dark pit area. But essentially while he's down there, we kind of see the three shadowy figures pop up in the background behind him and eventually 
eventually he kind of turns around and one of them is just like right there in his face and like grips his arm and literally like immediately scalds his arm and to kind of give you an idea what these ghosts look like imagine a person but completely like burned to a blackened crisp that's kind of the look blackened crispy skin that's kind of flaking off with a little bit of red gross underneath it and then just white eyes completely whited out eyes black burned clothing with smoke and some embers kind of flaring off of them a little bit they look a lot more like grotesque versions of the woodsman from the twin peaks revival yeah so these are like the first two or three pretty major jump scares because as he's going through assault and again this is all like typical you can kind of see it coming from a mile away because this movie does follow all the tropes to a t the thing that surprised me was i was expecting a ghost to pop up at him the way that it first happens is it looks like the first ghost is kind of camouflaged in with the wall and and it looks like it's like hunched over and it starts standing up and it looks like it's coming out of the wall. He like starts freaking out and then it suddenly goes from slowly moving to fucking running at him. And that's kind of when he like tumbles backwards and he turns around and there's the other ghost screaming in his face, grabs him in the arm and starts burning him. And then the ghost starts howling and he's screaming at the same time. Yeah. And then the, the movie cuts to upstairs. Paul hears him. Yeah. Paul and Anne hear him and they just hear like this one kind of like combined demonic almost scream of the ghost and him and yeah he rushes down there and he sees thankfully I was happy he isn't dead he's fucked up pretty bad but he isn't dead because they see him kind of like hunched over he runs up to him and he's like holy shit he has third degree burns all over his arm call an ambulance and then it cuts to later on he's back on the phone with the people saying like you need to get someone down here to fix this shit because the furnace almost killed like my electrician down here yeah quite the reveal of these ghosts. There are three ghosts in this movie. There's a woman, a younger, more teenage daughter, and then a man. And I think you see all three of them downstairs when they attack the electrician guy. Yeah. You definitely see two of them, but I think you see all three of them. Yeah. So we then cut back to May and Jacob. They're driving to the house. They're kind of voicing their doubts about the visit a little bit. Um, They haven't seen him in a long time. Paul's kind of a wet blanket a little bit. Like, is he just going to be stodgy? and unwelcoming and you know frankly Paul is also kind of saying like uh they're just kind of weird out there like this is going to be just kind of awkward so there's definitely doubt from both couples around what this weekend's going to be but everybody kind of agrees like let's put our best face forward and just all try to hang out and enjoy being around each other. Oh you poor poor fools. Yeah and again they also say that their son is coming along because he was friends with Bobby so once they arrive at the house they kind of quickly decide let's go ahead and just run out to eat dinner real fast and the son can catch up with us once he gets here. So they go to this local bar, burger joint. It's like basically the only place in town to get food and you know all the locals are just kind of packed in this place because again it's kind of the only place to hang out as soon as they walk in. It's needle scratch, broke bottle, everybody's giving them the stink eye a little bit. Yeah, it's a lot like that scene from American Werewolf in London when they walk into the, the pub. Totally. It even takes them a long time to get a waitress to come help them. As they're sitting down drinking and eating Anne and Paul are kind of detailing the sordid past of the house that they learned from Dave and immediately May kind of voices her doubts about whether or not the energy in the house is actually Bobby which again as viewers we all kind of from the get go know okay there's something more going on here it's definitely not your son right? So she's already kind of like uh Anne I'm not sure about this. Meanwhile while they're there 
there, the Lewis's son, Harry, arrives with his girlfriend, Daniela, at the house. And Harry, too, is like, oh, you know how my parents are. They they kind of yeah. are like these spiritualists. Even Harry kind of is like eye-rolly a little bit about yeah, his parents. My parents are hippy-dippy, you know. Yeah, they called me here as a favor for, because I was friends with Bobby. I'm doing it for them and Bobby, but I'm not necessarily doing it. I don't believe in any of this. Yeah, yeah. basically, yeah. And while they're driving, this is kind of also where we find out that Bobby died in a car crash a couple of months earlier. Because before then, we just kind of had the vague idea that their son died. We know that that's what happened, but we don't necessarily know the like how or details until now. But once they arrive at the house, they find a note on the door. Everybody had left earlier saying like, hey, we're going to go eat in town at this place if y'all want to join us. But they decide like, eh, let's just stay here and... (laughs) Yeah, we're shitty young adult archetypes in a horror movie. What do you think we're going to do? Yeah. So they decide to just stay at the house and drink and fool around, right? Which I love too. Like every time that we see people drinking in this film, they're drinking from this bottle of whiskey called B&J whiskey, which is definitely an homage to J&B scotch, right? And they're like, again, you haven't watched a ton of Italian horror, but that's one of those weird staples of Italian horror. They fucking love J&B scotch for some reason. Nobody really knows why, but it's just like a thing in all the Italian horror movies that people are drinking J&B scotch. It's like the Wilhelm scream, but for Italian horror. Totally. Like every mustachioed detective is like slamming J&B scotch in those movies, right? This is like a fake bottle of B and J whiskey. So that's what we see everybody drinking. And I did not pick that up at all. Like to me, if you just look at the bottle, it's clearly a J and B bottle because that's what I used to drink when I was fairly broke. But if you just look at the bottle, that's clearly what it is. But I noticed that in like some of the trivia for this movie afterward on IMDb that it's actually a fake B and J whiskey. While the two teens are at the house, they also hear the weird footsteps, um, which Harry goes to investigate because he kind of thinks, oh, wait, are they still here? Did they go to this restaurant? Like, or did they just get home? So he hears the footsteps. And of course, he's like, wait, I think they're coming from the basement. And so, of course, his dumbass is like, let me just go look down here. <laughs> I know, right? Look, even if you don't believe in this shit, most level-headed people are like, I think I'll wait until everyone else is home and maybe we'll go investigate yeah. with more people. Not just me or me and my girlfriend do it. What a fucking boneheaded move. Yeah. Yet another horror trope. Yeah, he's heading downstairs into the basement and he's standing on the staircase with the darkness of the basement behind him and his girlfriend Danielle like comes to the doorway and it's like, you know, just come back up here. Like, don't go down there. It's dark. And he's like, oh, it's fine. Nothing's wrong. Blah. And then he's fucking killed, right? Yeah, another jump scare. One of the apparitions fucking tackles him on the stairs and starts grabbing his head and his face and burning his face and like caving it in while it's, he's burning him. Yeah. I think it's the male apparition, like the one male. Yeah, probably so. And then Danielle fucking she freaks bails. out. Yeah. She bails. She hops in her car and starts bolting it going like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And yet again, more horror tropes. This one is the one that gets me. This is one of my like weird, irrational fears of look in the mirror and nothing's there. Look in the mirror, nothing's there. Look in the mirror, something's in the backseat. Yeah. That happens. The apparition of, I think, the mother or the daughter, one of the female ghosts, is in the backseat. Another jump scare. And then the next thing you see is the apparition's arm going through her stomach, going through the backseat yeah. into the driver's seat. Like, through her shoves stomach. her entire arm through the seat and through her chest, just like bleh, everywhere. And then you just see the car kind of like slowly drift off the road and go into a ditch. Yeah. And while this is happening, it cuts back to the bar where the adults are all hanging out and may has this psychic 
psychic flash kind of moment when her son dies and she kind of freaks out and just says like we got to get home something just happened blah 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 so the lewises and the sachetes they head back to the house when they get there there's no real signs that harry or daniella were ever there because again the car is gone harry has dot 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 disappeared into the basement Paul, once they're up in the bedroom, he's kind of voicing his skepticism about all the psychic nonsense as well. So he's still the, like, skeptic of the group for sure. But it cuts back to the restaurant later that night. And we see one of the waitresses talking with the bartender. And the bartender was the one who talked to the adults when they were at the bar. She kind of was the one serving them and kind of giving them weird looks. Yeah, but she's kind of questioning this waitress. What were they talking about? What did they say? Did they mention anything about this or that? And there's like a knocking on the door really heavy. And this is late at night after they've already closed down because they're like wiping down the tables and wiping down the bar and everything. The waitress goes to answer the door and we just hear a gunshot (laughs) and she falls dead. And Dave, the old guy from earlier and his wife, Kat, walk into the restaurant in kind of this ominous foreboding way, which I don't understand why he killed the waitress. Exactly. So this was one of those ones where I was like, wait, what the fuck? When it happens, like as soon as you hear the gunshot, the bartender was, instead of almost panicking, she's more like, oh shit, I fucked up. I should have known it was him. Yeah. As he's walking in, like kind of annoyed that this new waitress answered the door and he had he had to kill her, I guess, for some reason. Dot, dot, dot. He's scolding the bartender being like, you should have known better. And she's like, look, I, I, I shouldn't have sent the new girl to, to let you in. I should have I just let you in myself. But yeah, again, like why did he then Why'd have he to kill, kill her? waitress yeah it's i think it's just maybe to like show how ruthless he actually is dot 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 but i i don't understand that decision that's like the one baffling thing in this movie is why did he shoot and murder this waitress in this restaurant for no it's reason? comically evil even the joker would kind of be like at least i would have said a punchline first before i yeah. shot her it's just so inexplicably like evil like ooh, i'm a bad guy and then yet again also to dave's wife cat is there as well cowering scared She's just kind of cowering and just looking down at the floor and not saying anything. And anytime Dave shows up, it's an exposition. Yeah. Then we get like finally the reveal of the town's dark secret. Yeah. But Dave basically sits there at the bar talking to the bartender and he gives the whole rundown, like you said. So what we end up learning is there is some kind of deep, almost Lovecraftian evil underneath this house. And it wakes up every like 30 or so years. It's kind of that Stephen King's It kind of thing of this dark presence that returns to this town every couple of decades and needs like souls of a family to feed on. Like it has to have these sacrifices. And if it doesn't, essentially it will spread through the town like some kind of plague and like take more people with them. So he even says it too. Like he says, do you remember that one time in the 50s? Yeah, where we didn't offer up a family or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All that shit that happened in the town. And that's all you get. You just know if something went down. Yeah, and we learn that the Dagmar family were offered to this darkness and this evil as a sacrifice back in the 1800s. It's kind of inferred that they were the first sacrifice and that the town had them burned in the house 
or something and and they just made up that story of like them getting run out of the town for yeah. uh, being shady practices thinking about it afterward my guess is this because there is like that old stone foundation in air quotes that's in the basement my guess is there is some kind of weird darkness entity portal thing and the people that lived in that area would sacrifice families or people to this darkness but what they ended up doing in the 1800s was they literally built a house on top of that right like on top of that portal or well or altar or whatever it was right because in the beginning of the movie when Dave first shows up he specifically says the villagers built this house for the Dagmar family wink 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 yeah yeah so my guess is the house was literally built as just a way to like get people to come to this town and live there and just be there already and let the darkness just kind of take them you know without the people of the village having to get their hands dirty and again we kind of learn in this scene one time they couldn't find a family to come live in that house and they didn't get people moved into that house in enough time and the darkness woke up and just spread through the town murdering people left and right and took ultimately more people with it than like they could have just sacrificed so well and he also an interesting thing though he notes here is he notes that he's frustrated because he's like why have the Dagmars not killed this family already yeah because apparently in the past they like kill whoever gets in the house almost immediately like maybe the first night or the first couple nights yeah the spirits of the Dagmar family essentially do the dirty work for them yeah yeah but for whatever reason it's been like a week or two or however long and the Dagmars still haven't killed them and so he's kind of Dave is kind of just like getting frustrated like we need to make sure that this happens basically like if the Dagmars can't do it we'll have to do it ourselves yeah and this this scene and later on and, and in the scene that's about to come up there's a little more information that's given but it's it's all kind of still up to your own imagination as to what this quote-unquote darkness is because you could say that it's basically just a portal to hell um, because it's kind of implied that anyone that is sacrificed or killed for this darkness kind of ends up being part of it and being trapped with it and I'm not sure why it's only that well there's also another scene coming up that I have my own personal theory about which we'll get to but let's keep going yeah yeah, let's keep going I think you and I might be thinking along the same lines for that so later that night Paul has an insane nightmare Jesus Christ this is like the scariest scene in the fucking movie too So it starts off almost like a night terror because he kind of wakes up and it starts off as a dream, but he thinks he's awake type of dream, like in, in, in his room. It starts off with their door is closed and he sees feet underneath the door, like a shadow underneath the door of someone standing there and just starts knocking or messing with the knob or something. Paul thinks it might be Jacob or May. So he's like, do y'all need any help with something? Then the door just fucking fly open and no one's there in the hallway. Like the door is now open. It's just an empty hallway and he kind of looks back at his wife seeing if she's awake and be like are you seeing and feeling all this he looks up the doorway again nothing's there looks back down his wife again then he looks back up and the daughter and the mother ghost and this is like one of the first scenes where you really see what they look like are standing there in the hallway with the light behind them just staring at him and he like freaks out and he looks down at his wife and and 
instead of his wife, there's this rotting corpse type ghostly being next to him that kind of like is howling at him. Isn't it like kind of almost bluish looking? Like it's a bloated kind of yeah. festering kind of corpse looking spirit. It's it's like a corpse version of his wife. Yeah. Yeah. It is in like this silent howl looking at him. And then he like freaks out and immediately is the third Dagmar spirit screams in his face. And then he like freaks out and wakes up. And like this is the scariest scene because not only are those jump scares intense, but just the image of his wife turning into whatever that thing is um, was a little unexpected. Again, these are all tropes seen in other movies, but it just does it in a way that it's so effective here. So this kind of goes to my my own little headcanon. And the next scene coming up, we start getting a little more information that like whoever's killed in this house is kind of part of the darkness now. What I was mentioning a second ago, I feel like because the darkness that takes whoever is there in the house. I don't think that they necessarily stick around, but because the Dagmars specifically were like murdered by the townspeople, you know, as an offering to the house instead of the house just taking them with their like violent, untimely death at the hands of these people, the spirits of the Dagmars have stuck around, you know, and they're kind of in that weird limbo state, but, you know, like we were mentioning, the Dagmars typically, like, do the job of the house, and they haven't this time, which is what Dave was kind of frustrated with. Why are they not dead yet? But I think the Dagmars are stuck around more because they were untimely murdered for the house instead of the house just taking them. But again, this is all, like, conjecture on our part because there's lots of exposition dumps from Dave, but we don't get answers to everything explicitly. Like, it's still kind of a mystery, like, why the Dagmars are there and not every Everybody else that's been killed, but that's just kind of my guess is like because the Dagmars were maybe murdered by the townspeople in an untimely fashion, their spirits have stuck around. Yeah. But yeah, after Paul wakes up screaming from these insane nightmares, we cut to the next morning. Jacob kind of sort of manages to convince him to like do a seance while the wives are out running errands. Anne and May are kind of like, yeah, we're going to head into town and blah, blah, blah. And you boys just want to like stick here and hang out and spend some time together and you know they're kind of like yeah sure we'll just we'll hang out here and it cracked me up because Larry Fessenden was just like yeah like yeah what are we gonna do have a seance and then as soon as the door leaves he's like yo we should have a seance (laughs) (laughs) and I think even May or someone is like yeah just don't do anything while we're gone yeah (laughs) like wait till we're back yeah so while the two women are in town they bump into creepy old man Dave on the sidewalk he just kind of like happens to show up you kind of get the vibe that like he knew that they were there and he specifically is seeking them out to like basically yell at them again and he's just playing it off it's like oh look we just bumped into each other right but may kind of immediately gets bad vibes off of him and she kind of stands up to him a little bit you know like she basically just tells him like fuck off stop getting onto them blah 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 like i don't know what you're playing at here but like i don't like it like she kind of calls him out because she's senses there's something off about Dave, right? And so May says, we need to go home. You know, so she grabs Anne and, you know, they start heading back to the house. But, you know, we cut back to the house where we see Jacob and 
Paul start the seance. And they're both sitting there at the coffee table with candles going. And, you know, they're kind of getting in the mood a little bit. Paul's kind of rolling his eyes, you know, around some of it. But Jacob, again, is kind of like hitting the joint a little bit and has been drinking. So he's, you know, putting himself in the mood a little bit. But while they're doing this seance and he's like closed eyes calling out to the spirits in the house, it goes from like, you know, yeah, are there any spirits here? You know, that want to talk to us. If you have anything to say, just call out and say it or we'll strip the flesh off your bones. Like, it's just all these, like, foreboding <laughs> things. When that happened, I just thought of Henry's guitar riff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Jacob ends up possessed by the spirit of Dagmar, like the main husband, Lysander. Lysander Dagmar. Dagmar, yeah. yeah. He is now, like, talking with, like, an angry, loud, yelling, demon-y kind of voice. And it's totally not uh, Larry Fessenden's voice. There's a little bit of alteration. Yeah. yeah, and I think even someone, I remember reading somewhere that someone just straight up recorded Dagmar's voice and they just used it over his own. It could be, yeah, there, there could be some stuff like that going on. But Paul ties Jacob to a chair and like stuffs a sock in his mouth. Because he's going full exorcist. Yeah. Like he flies back into the chair. He's saying all this shit that's crazy and super demonic and violent. I think at one point he gets control again. Jacob for like a split second gets a little bit of control being like, tie me up now. Yeah. Fucking tie me up before I hurt you. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so he ties him up. So the wives return to the house right as Paul has finished tying him up. And so they're like, what the fuck is going on? We told y'all not to do anything. What the hell's happening? And Paul's trying to explain like something went wrong. We were doing a seance. I don't know what's happening. And they walk in and they see Jacob tied up with the sock in his mouth. And he's like twitching and kind of yelling in that demony kind of way. But Jacob swallows and eats the sock in his mouth. Completely, yeah. And you see, like, the bulge go down his throat. Yeah. It's fucking gnarly. But he basically taunts May and reveals, like, your son's dead. I killed him. Blah, blah, blah. And she- Your son and, and his whore. Yeah. They're in hell down in the basement burning. Yeah, she kind of freaks out at that. That's where I thought, like, maybe this is kind of like a portal to hell because he makes that comment of down in the basement with us burning. Yeah. Also, too, he just snaps out of the bindings he was in. Supernatural yeah. strength, basically. Kind of walking around the house, twitching and acting weird. He's not attacking anyone, but he is being taunting. threatening. He's first taunting them, and then that's when he starts talking about, we were a good family. The village had no right to do this to us. They killed us in the house and, and down in the basement, burned us alive. Me, my wife, and my daughter. Like and That's yeah. kind of where you get a little bit more of the background to it. Right before he breaks loose from the chair, though, while he's just still sitting there taunting them, the phone rings, and Anne steps into the other room to answer the phone. Remember how we were talking about Dave's wife kind of being quiet and demure the entire time, and she gave them, like, the piece of paper that was like, get out of the house, you know? She basically calls them to, like, give them one last warning, and she essentially says, like, the spirits in the house are not what you should be afraid of, and the camera's slowly pulling back. We see Kat on the floor, and I guess the kitchen, we're not 100% sure yet, but as the camera pulls out, we see that she has been stabbed with, like, a steak knife, and is just bleeding out onto the floor in the kitchen with the phone, and she essentially has given them a last warning of, like, 
get the fuck out of the house. They're coming. They're coming. The ghosts are not who you need to be afraid of. After the phone kind of goes dead, that's when we see Jacob break out of the chair. So The most dangerous game is man. Yeah. <laughs> so while Jacob is possessed by Dagmar, again, we kind of get this little bit more of an explanation of, the, you know, the villagers killed us, blah, 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 blah. You know, he basically says, like, you know, I'm going to show you all. I'm going to get my revenge. And he grabs a fire poker and, like, stabs it through Jacob's own head. Again, because he's kind of puppeting Jacob's body a little bit. But he, like, grabs a fire poker and just stabs himself through the eye. Yeah. And Jacob's body, like, kind of suddenly snaps out of the possession and it's him for, like, a brief second and he falls over and dies. When you get to hell, say hi to your son who's in the basement with us. Yeah. And immediately, May and Ann and Paul, the three left, they all start freaking the fuck out. Like, we gotta get the fuck out of this house. And they all run to the front door. May opens the front door and is fucking shotgun blasted in the head. And we just see Dave standing on the front porch with the shotgun and all these other townspeople like running up behind him. And the way they do it too is the camera's behind May. She gets shotgun blasted point blank in the face and the blood splatter that comes from the back of her head like hits the camera. Yeah. It's a little bit of a jump scare I guess because it's like a very sudden like all of a sudden blam. Yeah. And gore and like also in the like there are also people like coming through the windows. It's about like a group of 20 or 30 townspeople. Yeah. The townspeople are like totally putting this house under siege. Yeah. And they all have like axes and shit with them. Yeah. And Ann and Paul like you know slam the front door closed again run upstairs close themselves into the bedroom and start barricading it. And like I mentioned the townspeople are like coming in through the windows and the back door and you know in all these different directions. But right as the Sachetes are like about to run upstairs they get to like the bottom of the staircase and they look over and they see the three Dagmars all standing in the living room just ominously and they're like fuck so they you know run upstairs barricade themselves in and I almost took it like the Dagmars being like you're gonna want to go upstairs and not yeah. witness what we're about to do <laughs> like like I said earlier this is where like this movie to me is way more of like a fuck yeah kind of scary because you're like oh yeah these ghosts are about to fuck these people up yeah. it's <laughs> less like scary scary to me and more just like fun like oh we're about to see some wild shit yeah that part was very much just like a oh yeah yeah you can tell that even though Lysander was kind of being menacing towards them all he was mostly directing it at May yeah. and he wasn't trying to harm any of them he was just enraged just explaining to them like this is my house they ruined my life and my family's lives and we've been in this hell since then and I take it it kind of goes hand in hand with the whole idea that like why haven't the Dagmars killed them yet yeah there's just some underlying reason there and then yeah sure enough the, like as they're fleeing upstairs they see the three of them and I very much got that sense of time to get revenge he- yeah. head nod like y'all go upstairs we're, we'll take care of this and while they're barricading themselves into the bedroom they actually kind of hear this ghostly weird voice that is Bobby they kind of hear like mom death something kind of there and Anne like immediately stops and is like did you hear that Paul did you hear that like that's Bobby that's Bobby he's calling out to us it sounded like a little boy like and distant and it's very much different from the other um yeah it doesn't have that menacing quality yeah or it's, like it's, it's a, it feels like a totally different presence in the house yeah so as all the townspeople are like making their way into the house we have this great montage of them all just being one by one violently murdered by all the fucking Dagmar ghosts and it's wild shit like you just see one of the ghosts full body holding a dude up into the corner of the roof just tearing his 
guts out and you see like another person that gets melted into the stairs like as they're walking up the stairs they like get arms through the stairs grab the legs pull them down as like there's like burning embers and this guy just like ah and we see him later it's just human outline of ash on the staircase <laughs> literally dragged to hell they cut once or twice as people are pulled sucked down into the floor like it goes back down to the basement and that little hole that was in the wall like shoots out blood yeah whatever happened they got fucking put through like an eviscerator yeah. I love the one guy that just kind of turns around and is like what do we do and just blah, like his entire chest like explodes open sprays everybody with blood everybody's just like oh shit but yeah it's just this like wild home alone sequence of just everybody being myrtilated by these ghosts, <laughs> ghosts. and at one point you kind of like look out the window and finally you see like the three or four that survived out of like this group of 20 running like, away yeah. running away and you guys are the smart ones like yeah. fuck this so dave finally like walks around the corner and sees dagmar finishing off one of the townspeople and dave just full balls like walks up to this fucking ghost that's been murdering everybody and is just like hey you why haven't you fucking killed them yet and you know what job you're supposed to do and this is y'all's function like we've got a sacrifice to this darkness or blah 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 and why haven't you done that yet you know so he's basically just calling Dagmar out yeah like he's not phased by them killing the shit out of all his compatriots yeah he seems more annoyed than anything <laughs> and and at this point in time I was thinking like the ghosts literally just killed like fucking 15 townspeople isn't that enough of a sacrifice or does it specifically have to be a family yeah it, it's never a thousand percent clear on that either we cut back upstairs we see Ann and Paul in the bedroom and one last intruder has made bartender, their way yeah. it's the bartender yeah she makes her way into the bedroom she like creeps up behind Ann trying to kill her Ann like spins around and stabs her in the neck with a handful of like four or five knives from like a box of dishes for the kitchen that was all still upstairs the bartender woman like stumbles backwards and is just squirting blood out of her neck um then she falls over and she's dead so like okay that's it it's all quiet we don't hear anybody else they look out the window and they see the last few people running away so they make their way downstairs and that's where they see there's fucking carnage everywhere yeah. by the way like and they're they're almost like in shell shock like they're they look like they've just been through a goddamn war yeah bodies and blood and ashes and shit everywhere yeah there's just arms hanging down from the ceiling and just blood splatters all over the wall and shit the like Dagmar's again, fucked them up yeah so they walk downstairs and Dave and the Dagmar ghosts are all standing there and Dave is basically just like y'all knew this was coming we tried to warn you and blah 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 and you know what must be done now well and before that too is and this might just be me like making shit up in my own head but isn't there a hint too between like him yelling at Ann and Paul while he's also in between them and the ghosts isn't there a hint either then or when Jacob was possessed earlier that the house needs a family in that like the darkness itself is almost like this lonely child that needs a family to stick with it and that's why it, they are always sacrificing yeah. a family specifically there might have it. been a line like that and that kind of makes sense yeah like which is even creepier if like this murderous darkness is also childlike and so therefore the only way it can express that it wants parents is I need a new family every 30 years yeah give me new souls to eat basically yeah but Dave is basically like yelling like you know what must be done do it Dagmar and Dagmar instead like steps forward and grabs Dave by the head and just picks him up off the ground crushes Dave's head to a pulp like explodes 
loads his fucking head with crispy fire burny hands and just sprays blood from his crushed head everywhere as the wife and child spirits are watching. And so Anne and Paul are like standing there staring like covered in blood, just like, oh God, what the fuck? <laughs> Almost empty staring at this point. Yeah. They're just so shocked. There's like nothing happening in their behind their eyes. But two rookie mistakes here from Dave. One. Don't turn your back on a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> hey, don't turn your back on a ghost after you've taunted them. But yeah, three mistakes really. Don't taunt a ghost that's murdered like half the town in front of you. B, don't turn your back on said ghost. C, as soon as Paul and Anne walked in the room, fucking shoot them. Don't yeah. waste time to like to yell at them and yeah. the ghosts at the same time. Like you're asking. Don't villain explain yeah, what's going on. Yeah, you're killed. Shoot them. And then, hey, maybe because you killed the two that were needed to be sacrificed, maybe you live. Yeah. Maybe the ghost can't kill you at that point. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, now like the Sachetes are just covered in blood, staring at like all the carnage around them. And the Dagmars kind of had this moment of they all three are standing in front of them and they kind of all look at each other with this understanding. And the Dagmars look over and the door to the basement mysteriously just kind of opens on its own. And they hold hands. Yeah, they all hold hands. And then Anne like looks away for a brief moment and looks back and all the Dagmars are gone. They just like suddenly disappear and all that's left is just kind of this like hazy black fire smoke where they were standing. I read somewhere that it's theorized that they like left the house like since their revenge is complete they can move yeah. on or they can leave the house finally this house is cleansed yeah basically but instead of that there's fucking carnage everywhere yeah so Anne once again like hears Bobby's voice and she kind of dazedly like walks down into the cellar you know we see the door open again earlier she kind of walks down into the cellar and is followed by Paul all we see in the last shot is Paul like standing in the doorway looking down into the darkness of the basement and we just kind of see him like light up and he smiles slightly and then just says hey Bobby and then it cuts to credits. Boom, yeah. And was it me or was this second time that Bobby's voice, the first time we hear it is upstairs in the in the bedroom and it's saying, get out, you need to get out. And then the second time we hear it down here and it's like, hey mom, hey dad, or yeah. it says something like that. Did it sound a little different to you or did it sound the same? It sounded the same. It's it's just uh, like okay. a little distorted and kind of hard to hear exactly what he's saying, but it's definitely a different voice. Yeah, I had to go back and like re-listen to it. Yeah, it's definitely a different voice from like the Dagmar voices that you're hearing. Yeah. Because at first I thought, well, this sounds even different than the son earlier. Maybe it's the darkness in the house fucking with them and pretending like to be their son, or maybe it literally is their son. And I did read somewhere that like in the synopsis of the movie and like the premise of this movie that their son's soul did quote unquote travel with them and either was at risk of being lost and condemned to damnation in this house with them, Anne and Paul, or it was there helping protect them. And then there's also the theory, which I also kind of thought of too was again it's just the house fucking with them like the house realizes like the Dagmars are departing or it can no longer have the Dagmars so now it wants them now it wants them basically I mean I think you can read it either way it's totally open to interpretation it's a very weird ending because it's not a total downer dark ending but there's something feels a little off about it to be like a total happy ending too yeah it just feels very off well as the credits roll we kind of have this montage of newspaper clippings this is the coolest shit I wish more 
war movies did some stuff like this. Yeah, it's newspaper clippings from like all the way back in the 1800s to the present showing all these bad things that have happened in the town, all these murders, all these people that have died mysteriously. And so it's showing you this montage over the initial chunk of credits. Like every 30 years, it seems like animals start dying, a weird sickness starts showing up, yeah. whole families start going missing or showing up dead. But then there's a scene after this montage and it gives us the main credits that cuts back and there's like this scene of the cozy little living room with like a little fire going in the furnace and then all of a sudden we just see like blink one key on the piano strikes and then it actually cuts to black and gives you the still rest haunted of the baby <laughs> yep. yeah yeah because the carnage has mysteriously disappeared too in the house yeah that's the movie and you know it's it's definitely open to interpretation as far as kind of how it ends and where it goes and i like that you know i don't feel like i need any more of this story i don't need a sequel like i like the way that it kind of ends slightly ambiguous but ends in maybe like a positive way for the Sachetis after like all the grieving and all the like trouble they've gone through and everything else. I kind of like the ending. I like to look at it a little more hopeful than like too. a dark ending all said and done. I did too because I wanted to ask you why do you think the Dagmars held off on killing them? I'll give you my theory but I wanted to ask you first. I mean I think it could be like they weren't necessarily at least as far as we know like they weren't necessarily lured to this house. They kind of made this decision out of grief and trying to process that and like their son having died like it's just kind of one of those things like the spirits of the Dagmars maybe just since like they're already coming into this house with tragedy they've already lost a child like we lost our child and they all died together and you know maybe it was just kind of one of those things where they decide to uh just kind of let them slide a little bit yeah and I think you and I are kind of along the same thought process because I I also too think while it is a more hopeful ending I think it's a combination of a couple things like it wasn't necessarily their fault that they got pulled into this and the Dagmar sort of realized that I think the fact that they are already in grief of losing a child yeah kind of made them more sympathetic to the Dagmars the Dagmars are still obviously like pissed because they fuck with them still they still scare them and when he possesses Jacob he's still very menacing towards them but I think he's willing to give them the benefit of the doubt because of like what happened to their son and again maybe their son is with them and is communicated or whatever with the Dagmars to make them more sympathetic. Maybe the Dagmars are fucking with them and giving Paul nightmares and trying to scare them because they're trying to get them out of the house. Out of the house, exactly. And the other thing too was, I think it's a combination of that as well as the Dagmars realizing that we can kind of get our revenge through them. We don't have to take it out on them. If they're going to stay, if we can't get them out of this house, we'll let them bring whoever to us. Because it sounds like Dave has talked to these ghosts before almost like in that scene where Dave is like almost scolding them for not killing them yet it sounds like he's dealt with the Dagmars in the past because it's implied that Dave has been around for a while in this town maybe in their minds they can like get revenge by killing him and killing like a lot of the town in the process which brings me to my next point Dave loved how much he hammed it up as a evil version of the kind old man from Pet Cemetery. Sure. But as a villain, he is an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. He first shows up for no fucking reason, mind you. He basically like fucks with them psychologically. That could have backfired in his house. If they were more skittish, he could have scared them out of the house and then they'd be fucked because then there wouldn't be a family in that house. So why did he go over there in the first place just to tell them the history and like to fuck with them? A, and then 
B, again, he shot that waitress for no goddamn reason other than to be yeah. like, look how evil I am. That's still, again, the perplexing part to me, because like you just said, it it's just rings as like, oh, yeah, I'm bad. Do you not get that? I'm bad. Look, I killed this waitress. Okay. Yeah, which, okay, fine. But the first thing of him going to the house and like fucking with them a little bit by telling them the story and all that was kind of a minor mistake. But the big mistake, again, was like at the end where like, why didn't you shoot them as soon as they walked in the room? Yeah. <laughs> you moron. After taunting murderous ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. You literally had the villain splain and then get your shit owned. But yeah, I definitely enjoyed this movie. It's a lot of fun. I like showing this one to people because it's definitely one that most people haven't heard of. You know, the artwork for it's kind of weird on streaming. So you don't always have a vibe of like what it's about. But I love the poster with the spirits kind of rising up behind the house. You know, so it's one that like I'm glad people are still kind of checking out. You know, and I wish that the director would kind of get back around more to doing some horror stuff because I'd like to see more of what he can bring to the table in that standpoint. But I don't necessarily feel like I need a sequel to this movie, if that makes sense as well. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think it, it's kind of like it follows. I I think it would just kind of do more harm to continue trying to make stuff out of the, like make this into a series. Um, and again, it just doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it does the basics so well that it's very enjoyable. It was legitimately frightening to me, but it also is a little bit of a thrill ride. I, I do have to agree with you, though. It was pretty hysterical when you realize what's about to happen to the townspeople. Yeah. Which, again, is another kind of rookie mistake on everyone involved in that part, because, like, if the townsfolk know exactly what's going on, you would want to stay the fuck away from that house. Yeah. Period. <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? But, yeah, I definitely dig the feel and the tone of this movie. It, I don't feel like it's slow burn at all. I've heard some people say that it kind of is, but the fact that it just goes so bananas in the last 15 minutes is super fun. That was something I wasn't expecting either. I was expecting like, not a slow burn, but more of just like a methodical horror movie that kind of had some crazy jump scares towards the end, but I was not expecting like this whole subplot of like the town's dark secret and like just straight up ghosts like murdering the fuck out of villagers. Yeah. That was pretty surprising, but also a lot of fun to watch. There are some character choices and some acting choices that are questionable, but otherwise I, I can't, I don't have many complaints about this, uh, this whole movie. Yeah. Thumbs up scary too one of the scarier ones we've done yep cool cool so once again shout out to our friends at nightmare threads uh use our code watch if you dare all one word for a sweet 10 percent discount want to also give a shout out to my little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator for doing our music bumps at the beginning and the ends of the episodes um, check him out on Bandcamp. thanks buddy beyond that we are on social media facebook and twitter at uh, watch if you dare and you can catch our shows at apple podcast stitcher google play spotify Castbox. where our website is at podbean yep all the places so that's it for this week uh, once again, we are a horror podcast, and I'm the coward, and Aaron is the spooky monster boy. Yay! So, yeah, we got a bunch of episodes lined up and ready to go for the rest of this year so far. Um, but, yeah, we will see y'all in 2020. Here we go. This is my podcast, Sally. Get out.